Support comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies. Held on Fridays in May, each film touches upon Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, including Goya or the hard way to enlightenment and the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie at nortonsimon.org. You have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from Alleist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes, too, when you donate now at laist.com slash sweeps. Elias Studios. So, no Saturday Night Live, it's something happens, right? Uh, if you really like Saturday Night Live, you would hope that there's never going to be a writer's strike because that show will go off the air immediately. And that's exactly what happened. Late night shows have gone dark as Hollywood writers hit the picket line. Uh, we really thought we could make a deal. What we're asking for is fair. I'm Brian De Los Santos, and this is How to LA, the podcast from LA Studios that helps you navigate some of the more complicated things going on throughout the city. You may have heard that the Writers Guild of America was in contract negotiations with the studios and streaming services over things like pay and residuals. Well, they were officially unable to reach a deal Monday night, and picket lines have formed at all the studios across the city, Disney, Paramount, Sony, and others. Today, we're going to talk about why this is happening and why it matters. Maybe you remember the 100-day writer's strike that impacted the industry in 2007 and 2008. Maybe you're wondering what this means for your favorite shows or what it means for the broader economy. Because, you see, when writers go on strike, a lot of different people feel it throughout LA. We're here with my colleague, veteran entertainment reporter John Horn, to talk about what's going on. He's the host of Retake, the LES Studios podcast all about Hollywood stories. John Horn, thanks for being here. Happy to hang out with you for a little bit. I know there was a big writer's strike in 2007, but that was a totally different era for entertainment. It's 2023 now, and they're streaming and other media and companies are different, obviously. How did we get here? Well, let's talk about that 2007-2008 strike, because I think it's important to recognize what happened then. One of the issues back then was something they called new media. We would call it the internet. But back in 2007, there wasn't a lot of content that was being created for new media. So the Writers Guild has been pretty good about spotting what's on the horizon. And they felt then that they needed new contract language that would adapt to, and this is, you know, pre-Netflix, pre-Amazon Prime, pre-Apple TV+. People were making short movies, putting them on the internet, um, and there wasn't a compensation formula for those shows, or if the show succeeded, how would they be paid for multiple uses? So they were out for 100 days. They got language I think they were happy with, but if you go back and look at the history of the Writers Guild before that, pretty much every time they were on strike, it was over an emerging technology in terms of how content was going to be distributed. And now fast forward to 2023. Well, it's a very different world now. In the pandemic, the Writers Guild contract came up in 2020. There was not a lot of leverage for anybody to do much bargaining. So it was a pretty simple contract that didn't change much. But what happened in 2020, 
as you might remember, a lot of people started watching a lot of streaming content. And one of the things that streamers have been very successful at is attracting subscribers. How many people are watching a certain show is a mystery. Netflix, Amazon, Apple, they don't report viewership numbers or ratings or any kind of demographic information the way a traditional broadcast network does. So let's say, Brian, you've written a show. It's on, let's say, ABC. And part of your deal for reuse or reruns or syndication is based on how popular that show is. So you can see what the Nielsen ratings are. You know how many people are watching that show. And if it's sold into syndication, you know how much it sells for. So those are numbers that are visible. If you sell a show to Netflix, you don't know how many people are watching it. And Netflix can do whatever that is they want with it. They're not going to sell it to another market because they control those markets. So not only are you not going to get a reuse, but you don't know if your show is a hit. But streaming numbers have been a fraction of what they were for broadcast TV. And it's not just for screenwriters. I know somebody who arranges music for scoring sessions. If he does a film scoring session, let's say his residual or secondary use payment is $1,000 in streaming it's $100. It is one-tenth of what he used to make wow. for theatrical films, what he makes now on streaming. Wow, that's a huge... And let's actually, let's talk about money. And um, I kind of want to level set here. And we've heard from folks who are writers that they're not making bank, right, already. And then they're not making those streaming dollars either. So what have you heard as you've interviewed people for the story? What they're saying is that, and the Guild is saying that this as well, is that... A few years ago, about a third of the members were making the minimum that you would get paid for for writing on a show. Now it's about half. And the other issue is if you take out streaming compared to legacy network television residuals, they're a fraction of what they were before. And then you add on top of that that streaming series tend to be like eight or 10 episodes, whereas network series were as many as 20. So you're doing half the amount of work. And it's always been a gig economy. You're going from job to job. If you have a long-running series, you might be invited back to work on that show, but you might not be. And some series obviously don't last more than one season. So it is fractional work in terms of the pay of what it was a while ago. So for higher budget productions, writers want guarantees for a certain number of episodes and better weekly pay. There are a lot of screenwriters. Not all of them are working. I talked to a screenwriter who is in what's called a mini room, which is something that's being that has been a, an issue for the Writers Guild, where people are thrown together and work really quickly to do basically a year's work in two months. And I asked him, like, why are you doing this? Because it's undercutting the value of writing. He goes, I need the money. Um, you know, in successful screenwriters, the big names can make a fortune, but the ordinary rank-and-file screenwriters, they're not making more than fifty or $60,000 a year. In the past, what has happened um, when writers go on strike? Other people are affected, right? Yeah. I mean, it depends on, in, in the past, who honors or doesn't honor a picket line. So if you have you know, some people who won't cross a picket line, then all production shuts down. But at a certain point, certainly you know, in the last strike, 2007, 2008, it wasn't like Netflix was around to have a lot of content. So TV networks ran out of content very quickly. But you have to factor in a lot more than that. 
the people who are renting lighting equipment, the florist who is delivering flowers to the set for a certain scene, hotels, restaurants that might be around a set, you know, security on a movie, like people who have part-time jobs around production, all of those jobs go away. So when there is a stoppage of work, obviously the writers are not working, when they run out of scripts, the actors and the directors aren't working, but then there's a huge multiplier that can cost the local economy tens of million dollars a day in lost jobs and lost income. The writers themselves are a small fraction of what those losses are. But when you shut down a huge business like the film and TV business in California, a lot of people lose their jobs. During the last strike, there were an estimated $2.1 billion. Yeah billion with a B, in economic losses, and a net loss of more than 37,000 jobs directly and indirectly tied to the entertainment industry. This time around, some folks were already feeling the pain even before the strike became official, just because of the anticipation of a walkout work slowdown. Here's Kedra Dawkins, an art director on Black Panther Wakanda Forever. I have a friend who has decided to work in a different industry altogether. I have another friend who is struggling with health insurance and and navigating that world of it. And myself, I mean, it's I'm I'm looking at six months out of work at this point. This is longer than I've than I was out during the pandemic. And John spoke to a Hollywood electrician who's rethinking his career if a strike continues. I have strong roots in Florida right now, and there are some good economic opportunities there adjacent to what I do. I would not be in the film industry if I had to move back to Florida, but, you know, that would be the next thing. And yeah, if we're six months into a strike, I I don't see how I don't end up doing something like that. You know, with all those changes in the industry, could a production stoppage happen in the same way it happened in 2007? It depends on, on, you know, what's around. The difference between, you know, 20 years ago, if there was a strike, is that the streaming services, because they have so much content that's delivered around the world, they tend to work on a production schedule that's ahead of network television because they have to get those shows dubbed or translated into different languages. So when there is a strike going forward, the streamers will probably be in better shape than networks will be, and that's always going to be the case. Streamers, in 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 a weird way, even though they're a cause of a lot of a lot of this unease in the labor world, they're probably best positioned to be able to withstand you know a strike if it were the next year, the next five years, next ten years. For an ordinary audience member, consumer who you know watches shows, why would they care? Um, well, if they care about good content, that's why they should care. In fact, one of the small negotiating points uh, this time around, it's something that the Writers Guild members brought up rather than guild leadership, is artificial intelligence. Like, what if robots were writing scripts? Mm. I don't think those scripts would be very good. And if you look at the history of Hollywood labor from 1960 on, the Writers Guild has been on strike more times than every other guild combined. Because writers feel, and history proves, they have always been second-class citizens. But in the order of things, if you don't have writers, you don't have any content. So the writers feel, and I would have to I'd have to agree with them, they should be first-class citizens because they are creating the content that we enjoy. 
you've covered strikes before. You actually uh, have covered the Guild since the 1980s, you said? You're dating me, but yes. <laughs> I was an intern, at least. It was, it was a younger me. A younger John Horn. What have you learned or what have you know has impacted you as you covered strikes or just the guild of raw i think what's been interesting to note is it isn't necessarily the bargaining table items that are important it's about the solidarity of the guild so when they ask this year for a pre-strike authorization vote 98% plus of those eligible voted in favor of it that is the new guild that they operate like a union, but they also operate like a political entity that's going to the bargaining table. And it's very difficult because on the other side of the bargaining table are companies with very disparate interests. And this has been another fundamental change in the last 15 years. You know, 15 years ago, it was Disney, Paramount, Warner Brothers, Sony. Now it's Amazon, Apple, Netflix. Disney, those other companies are still around. But what's important to Apple isn't necessarily important to Sony. Paramount doesn't care that much about streaming. Apple doesn't care that much about the theatrical marketplace. So that's the other thing that has changed. The Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, which is the bargaining entity for film and TV studios and streamers, they are no longer aligned as one. And that makes their job more difficult. So studios are always saying they don't have money. What's behind that? Well, um, is that, yeah, kind of air quotes around they don't have money. Right. They have money. I mean, they just don't want to spend it. And listen, these a lot of these companies are publicly held. You know, whatever s- streaming makes for Apple or Amazon is pocket change for those companies. Disney, in its most recent quarter, reported $1.28 billion, that's a B, mm-hmm. in net income. Warner Brothers Discovery said its studios made $768 million in quarterly adjusted income. So, yeah, they're not growing as fast as some companies have grown in the past. They're certainly profitable. But, you know, they're trying to make sure their margins stay fat. And the way you keep margins fat is you take in a lot of money and you don't spend a lot of money. So the less they have to spend on screenwriters or actors or whatever – the more profit they're going to make. In Spanish, we just say, like, son codos. They're um, cheap. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. That was John Horn, entertainment journalist at Elias and host of Retake. Tomorrow, our strike explainer continues. We'll be hearing from some writers in the thick of it about what's at stake for them personally. When it's all said and done, we're talking about, like, 2%. 2% of the profits that the streamers make. And again... I I just don't think people understand how much this industry depends on writers. And the writers are the first people to get pooped on. (laughs) And how the work stoppage will impact people's lives. My insurance runs out in the fall. So if I don't have a job by then to get points, my insurance will be running out. Yeah, there's a lot at stake for a a lot of us. There's a lot of people who will be giving up the current jobs that they have. There's a lot of people who will be running out of the savings that they have. This episode was produced by Victoria Alejandro. Our other producers are Evan Jacoby and Meg Botel. That is it for today, folks. Bye, and we'll check you out tomorrow. Again, if you can, show us some love, rate, and subscribe to this podcast. Thank you. Support for this podcast is made possible by Gordon and Donna Crawford, 
who believe that quality journalism makes LA a better place to live. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com slash sweeps. LAist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAist.com events.